1: from Offscript Media. I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, the glamorous, exotic world of clinical trials. Lots of problems. We're going to chat. I'm joined by my co-founder, Andrew McDowell, along with Eric Kroll, who is the co-founder at Adaptive Health. He's got an MBA out of Stanford. This guy is a serial entrepreneur, advisor, investor. He is also on the board of directors of Ben's Friends, a nonprofit dedicated to creating patient communities for people with rare diseases. Also here is Jeremy Block, the other co-founder at Medaptive Health. He is a digital health research and regulatory biochemist. Say that 10 times fast. He's got a doctor of philosophy and biochemistry from Duke, and he's also executive director and co-investigator for Sloan Kettering. We had an incredible conversation, breaking things down and doing a little schoolhouse rock, if you would, on what just exactly is going on in the world of clinical trials. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're talking here with our friends at Adaptive Health about what we would I would affectionately call stupid clinical trials and the word itself, and their business, and how we're are we solving problems and what's the space like and the stigma around this? And it's just a bunch of noise and I like to be proven wrong. So I'd like to understand what drove you into this madness. That is the world of healthcare.
2: Oh, geez. Oh, so Eric is looking at me and you saying, lose that battle. I lose that battle. Um, So what drove me into this? Uh, It's the reverse of what you said. It's actually madness that drove me into this. (laughs) And it's madness at a system that is very broken, uh, which I think we all sort of agree upon. Healthcare and healthcare technology is probably 20 to 30 years behind in terms of the things that it has taken on. And that's a lot to do with the fact that it's regulated. Financial technology is the same way. It lagged behind social media and other unregulated spaces. So I, I take that perspective. That doesn't mean that it should be as far behind it is, that in 2020... You have healthcare systems across the country still wondering whether the cloud is safe, and it's really funny when they write that in an email and send it to you from something that's backed by Google and Gmail. Right? Um, It's like okay, that's the cloud. Um, So there's a lot broken from a trial standpoint. So I was an IRB chair at a big hospital, and what I saw—that's
1: a big responsibility.
2: Yeah. Um, Let's not
1: underplay that.
2: It's it is. I, I have a long background in it. Um, I think it's very important um, in one of the things that is often misunderstood by researchers about IRBs, institutional review boards, is that their goal is not to promote research. Their goal is to protect the rights of the subjects in the research. So they're actually the natural ally and protector of patients. And that's something that is always misunderstood because it's a regulatory body. And so everybody looks at it as what I call the, um, the clinical research Stockholm syndrome um not the i've never heard that that is so perfect right but it's not the stockholm you think it's that all of these researchers believe that this stupid irb is standing in the way of them and their nobel prize in stockholm and so they look at you and they get angry it has nothing to do with the other one um so they they'd make us out to be the enemy when we're saying no 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 we're making sure that patients, participants in trials are not being exploited, that their rights and their welfare is being protected. And we have laws that came from terrible atrocities that dictate why we do this and that it really matters. Um, so I, I came at it from that pe- standpoint and also being somebody who built technology and it, just a, a general sort of demographic thing. IRB chairs are often in their 60s, um, have bifocals and are tenured. N- are a little tenured yes so a little bit harder to murder by their administrators um and not as technology savvy because they didn't grow up native to it and so you they're very skilled but they're under in this area for good reason um and so when i became an irb chair in my early 30s it was a different story because i was bringing up issues that they were completely unaware of and then being able to demonstrate to them hey privacy and security concerns are real um the issues around buying and selling data are real secondary disclosure of data is real we have problems here and because you don't know the problems you're not able to protect people from them Um, and so that's that's how i got into that Um, and that's also why i left academia to go work in tech because i wanted to say you know what all these technology companies are doing it wrong all these investors are getting their shirts taken and are not making sound judgments I'm going to leave. And instead of parroting and complaining when it's too late, I'm going to go upstream and see if I can help. And so that's, that's nominally why I left, um, and started doing this. It's the digital health
1: snake oil syndrome. Yes. We've I've experienced firsthand running stupid cancer, the predatory nature in which the startup mentality trumps the purpose mentality that you really want to make sure that you're doing something that can translate to the average human being. And I talk about this pretty much on every show, right, Andrew? Hi, Andrew. That's absolutely the case. Is that there's this donut hole of the end user always being the prescribing doctor, and yet the other end user, which is ignored by the structure itself, is the actual consumer patient taking The drug, the trial, the med, the the scan. And yet, industry needs that unrequited end user that isn't the doctor to help them understand how to make money.
3: How do you square that? Because that really pisses me off. I'm going to turn to Eric. Sure. Would you like me to answer the first question around how I got into this as well while I'm doing that? I would say build a melange (laughs) for me. Sure. So, back in high school, I tore my ACL got operated on, decided that would be a really cool job to be that surgeon. I became pre-med in college, but when I worked in, uh, two different hospitals, one in New York, one in Dallas, I found that the doctors really did not seem to enjoy their lives. And so I decided to pursue business and I worked at American Express launching new products. It was cool, but how passionate can you really be about a credit card? So after business school, I went into technology. And it was great, it was fun, it was interesting. We were doing some pretty neat projects, but at the end of the day, I wanted to do something that would help the world. And so, uh, my, let's see, my cousin's kid had neuroblastoma, was given a you know, 1% chance to live past age four, and is now, in I think, in her teens, and they call her Miracle Maggie. You know, there are lots of stories that we all have around those things. You know, we're all going to be affected by some type of cancer, either to us or one of our, our relatives or friends. So around 2008 or so, I joined bensfriends.org as a board member. and we, What's their mission? So the mission is to help people who have rare conditions connect with others like them. So it all started when Ben had a rare disease that he didn't know about. He had a stroke, a brain aneurysm caused by a stroke. During business school, his girlfriend found him, passed out on the ground 15 minutes from death. During his, uh, He got life-saving surgery, and during his two years of recovery, he didn't have anyone to talk to about what he was going through, so he decided to start an online support group. He got dozens and hundreds of people to talk to, and his friend said, hey, can you do this for my uncle who has this other condition? And that started us down this path of helping lots of people with rare diseases. So now we help over 100,000 rare disease patients a month and uh, over about 40 different communities. But that said, there are 300 million people around the world who have rare diseases. There are, I think they counted now roughly 7,000 rare diseases out there, and that's going to go much higher. So over the the last several years, uh, I got introduced to Jeremy by my oldest friend from age three, who is his best friend in New York. And he said, hey, you guys should talk. I had just been at a tech startup that we sold. And I said, met up with Jeremy to help him uh, leave his more research-focused background to get into so working with fault. healthcare. It's huh? t- <laughs> It's his fault. I mean, yes, yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> it's his fault. So we hit it off and started a healthcare consulting practice. We got a handful of great clients. The largest became a unicorn and the smallest of which was Medaptive Health. And Clay, early on, um, had been asking for more and more of our time. And Jeremy, Clay is the CEO of Medaptive. Jeremy and I had said early on that if we found an awesome team, with a great idea that could help the world we'd have to consider joining full-time and so in the middle of 2017 after a bunch of months of consulting and helping Medaptive grow we did just that yep
2: and i was really biased towards Medaptive. i mean i have to be very honest about it when i was at mount sinai i was part of a group of people who worked on one of the first four research kit applications backed by apple to do medical research on a mobile device and it, what we focus on at Medaptive is a whole bunch of capabilities that actually take that to the next level and it dovetailed with a lot of things that I thought I might actually be able to do that could demonstrably help real human beings on both sides. Um, so that's, I had a huge bias. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we can, we can, we can join them full time. Like, but you oh, had a trigger moment. You had a trigger moment where you realized that
1: I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, I'm going to move away from this academic position
2: and really demonstrate that it can be done a different way. Yep. a trigger moment happened in 2015. Um. It happened on a phone call i had with somebody at apple when i realized that they needed help and i was providing them help with something i was happy to do it and they asked for it which by the way they're one of the few tech companies out there that will ask which is to their credit Hmm. um and i realized that this was a way bigger problem than i had imagined i sort of naively thought they're apple they design these beautiful things they have hundreds of billions of dollars right of course they got this covered wrong right well not right wrong but i agree with you that it was never not yeah so that was my trigger was these companies don't know what they're doing we need to make sure they do it right so eric besides realizing
1: that you had like this random mishpach relationship with this guy you'd never met before did you have a specific trigger moment because you have a very unique backstory to
3: your career I don't think there was one particular thing that happened, but a series of events that happened, you know, when I was born, I was actually born very premature, I don't ever talk about this, but I was supposed to- And now to, you do. And now I do, apparently. So I was- it's On the record. So I was supposed to have a twin. My twin didn't make it. Mm. Uh, I just knew- Right that, here. I just knew that- <laughs> I just knew, and I didn't find out about that until I was roughly 24. Wow. Okay. I knew all along that I when I was born, I wasn't supposed to make it myself. They basically told my parents, go pray, which is essentially a death sentence. We can't do anything for him. So thankfully, the hole in my, my heart closed, and obviously, I'm here and, and survived. And so- that part I always knew I was appreciative of just life. And so I don't think I'd take things for granted and I want to get the most out of. Them. I'm always active and trying to be out there. But I also realized over time through you know living through nine eleven, uh seeing Miracle Maggie survive, uh seeing a number of friends or relatives go through either death or cancer or being sick, uh, that I wanted to make an impact on the world and I wanted to do
0: something that could leave a legacy. Spectacular. I'm curious. To know what you think it is that health tech companies have been doing incorrectly. I think in general, there
3: might not be the aligned incentives in place that helps everyone move along the same path. So what you see oftentimes in technology is people come in and break stuff. And that doesn't work in healthcare. Our head of patient engagement, Michael Rogan, likes to talk a lot about how we need to enable patients to unburden themselves of what's going on with them, but then not push them any further. Mm. So as an example, when researchers often ask surveys or questions of patients or participants in studies, they often will just say, gimme, 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 and they keep asking questions, but they don't really feed them anything back and they don't really take into account what's going on in the patient's mind. And so uh, Michael and Jeremy and Clay and our team and Maria, have ensured that we are taking patients into account first. So whenever we ask questions of patients, we always make sure to give them something back so that they feel like they are participating and they can see that we are listening or that our clients make it more of a relationship, humanizing, right? And then often dehumanizing experience, right? You also don't want to do things like streaks oftentimes in healthcare, because that can be very demoralizing. If you've been on a streak for 18 days and then you fall off, you don't want to get back on the horse. Instead, you want to maybe do slight gamification, but it's really about personalizing it, making them feel like they've been heard, helping them engage, and then not going overboard. So you only ask questions when you
0: think you can get answers and not after that. And you're using some terms that I'm a little bit unfamiliar with. I've never participated in a clinical trial and I've never run one. Hopefully you won't have to. Yes. Uh, Could we talk about the basic, the basics of how how some companies do clinical trials and how you do clinical trials? Um
2: sure. <laughs> so it, one of the things that you asked earlier about what's wrong with digital health mm-hmm. and with health tech um there's a lot. One whole category of it we're going to set aside and mm-hmm. that's the everything wrong with startups is also wrong with digital health. There's that layer. That's mm-hmm. the next show. <laughs> right. But that layer is its own layer and all that is in my mind and this is not, I say all that is almost dismissively but not meaning it that way. All that is, is a mapping of, we all know what all the failures are in startups, apply that to health, fine. There are unique things that are unique to how humans engage with their health or don't engage with their health and how they engage others around them to either support that or get assistance for it, whether it be the system or their family or care providers, you name it, their community. Um, Those things are specific to health and people are really bad at that because they, are just taking what they learned elsewhere and making the dumb assumption that it will work there. Social media and gamification, as Eric pointed out, really not going to work. If you are in a serious condition, you're in a clinical trial for something that's serious or chronic, you got a lot going on. Being reminded every day that you got that going on, that's not going to help you. Doing something at a low level that's supportive and allows you to unburden that stress and ensure that we still have that tether to you, And that connection and the connection never gets broken, even if it's at low level of engagement, is far more important than arrogantly thinking you're going to drive somebody else's behavior to do what they want. Mm. That's it's foolish. So there's that. Within digital health, my biggest thing that bothers me: people don't do research properly, or they don't do it at all. It's the snake oil effect. It's with that Matthew talked about. They come in and they say this works. I look at them. and go, Food and Drug Act. And the cosmetics act says you need to vet your labeling stop i mean i can't tell you the number of digital health companies that put labeling and statements on their websites that violate the fda's rules and they don't test things there is a corollary for phase trials for digital i've been writing this up for a while i haven't put it out there but there is a corollary of phase one phase two phase three phase four there's the equivalent for digital products whether it be diagnostics devices things that help intervene and and help people manage their symptoms. You name it, there's, there's a corollary for it and people aren't doing it. But if you want things to work, you want to study them methodically. You want to put it through a pathway where people can be really sure that it works. Otherwise you wind up with garbage and society deserves better. Technology has transformed a whole variety of fields. When you open up this field, we should not merely reiterate in new technology, old problems. We need to make sure that people's dignity and autonomy is protected and improved because new technology could help with that. We need to make sure that the most vulnerable amongst us actually receive the greatest benefit instead of continuing to place them at the end of the line and at the back. And when you open it up to do it, the way to get that done, in my opinion, is the technology needs to be built with ethical, legal, and social implications baked in from the beginning. can't imagine how many irb
1: chairmen with that experience do dive into this particular well of digital health engagement almost philosophy most people don't ask to be advocates no one wants to be a patient no one expects to have to join a club that they didn't want to be a part of and when we first met and you talked about Ben's friends, it really did harken back to pretty much the entire reason I started Stupid Cancer and all the other incredible peer-to-peer groups where there's no judgment and no stigma. But with that hat on, you're also living in this space as a real actor and not a bad actor. So we in the spectrum of holy shit, I have something. Holy shit, there's a treatment. And holy shit, I'm either out of the woods or living with this. Do you guys play in
3: that life spectrum? So, depends. With my life, it it is different, right? So, with Ben's friends, we. Oh, sorry. Let me me go back. I was referring to the the trial. Got it. So, where in the life
1: cycle of a patient that enters this shit happen store do they interact with
2: your perspective and philosophy on their care? I think two spots. And Eric, maybe you can address the foundation one and I can address the the trial one. Um, And I'll just sort of outline it and sort of toss it over to Eric. We have a variety of different clients who use technology from adaptive health. Uh, One would be disease foundations, the kinds of groups like what you founded that supports a mission of a specific group experiencing a specific thing. And for them, they often want to collect data from people who are in that, in a registry and then provide them back. And this is unique to us, I think, compared to many others, supportive information. Instead of just take, give, Uh, let them know they're being supported, send them stuff that's useful to them and create a relationship that grows and is lasting. And so the foundations have one piece of it and that's pretty early because they're not actively on some drug or device, you know, any kind of intervention. Um, And Eric has a a lot more to say about that. He's a lot more um, close to that one. Um, And then the other area would be in clinical trials themselves. And this is another segment that uses our technology because the technology is pretty flexible. And these would be pharma companies, device manufacturers, um, academic medical centers and hospitals, people who conduct research. So the investigators who conduct research and interact with those participants who are in clinical trials or research studies. And so we're hitting two sides of a relationship and supporting both and pointing them towards one another and providing them with the tools in a very tech enabled way to improve that relationship. Because if the relationship is important, the outcomes you want can have the opportunity of of occurring. Back with our guest after the break.
3: the Disease Foundation side that Jeremy mentioned, patients, I can't imagine a much more traumatic experience than being in a clinical trial. You have a disease. You haven't been able to get cured by whatever is existing right now in terms of medicines and solutions out there. You are in a trial that is scary. You are on a drug that may or may not work. Oh, actually, by the way, you might not even be on the drug. Right. If you, if you are on the drug, you may have side effects. It's the perfect storm of bad and of scary. And so to the extent that we can provide those people with the support that they need is extremely helpful. So a little backstory about how Clay Williams originally founded the company, his mom died of pancreatic cancer. He had, Clay had to go through a series of registries. He had to give blood. He had to answer a bunch of questions. And then all he got back was a thumbs up. You're in the clear. Well, being a bioinformatics guy, well, what did you do with all the answers I gave you? And so that's partly why we make sure to always give someone something back. So when a patient has uh, cancer in this case, metastatic breast cancer with one of our clients, they would hear about the registry. They would join the registry. They would answer a series of survey questions. They would input a series of treatment history. So what surgeries they've had, what medications they've on, they're on, what medications they're on, what trials they've been through, et cetera. And then we immediately feed them information back in the form of what we call personalized insights. Those might be articles that are hyper-relevant to them. Those might be conferences or webinars. It also can show them graphs or charts based on how the community as a whole has answered these questions. Also that they feel like they are being heard and they're part of an overall community. We also recently launched clinical trials matching so that once you've answered the previous questions, you will get matched in potential trials that are a good fit for you and those trials are actually taken from clinicaltrials.gov and translated, so to speak, into easier to understand language, which is a issue sometimes with some uh, trial language, as we spoke about earlier. We want to put things into uh, words that people are going to understand. I like the idea of the human
1: intervention during oh shit moments like this. And uh, I've spoken ad nauseum at conferences and on our show, and at, about how the trials itself are only as good as not just if you qualify, not just if the exclusion criteria is there, not just if the person at the center still works there. The I think we call it the the cholesterol in the artery of enrollment, and what is the angioplasty needed? to guarantee that if you are eligible for a trial how is it not scary as fuck how do you actually get there how are you treated like a person and how are you not if you're rejected it's not like uh, you're, you're breaking up with your wife or your girlfriend because oh i'm sorry you have diabetes go the fuck away and that happens every day and that could be 15 podcasts of patients and their horror stories about the hope that they were given as scary as that is and yet they can't get there and they can't leave their kids and just to wrap that up because we focus so much on gen x and millennials it's a part of your life where the disruption is so different than if you were you know on medicare
2: that's a lot, and it's a big problem. Um, I
1: just kind of went on a bit of a rant.
2: No, 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 and I was nodding and smiling. It, too bad podcasts can't show you know <laughs> nods and smiles. Um, nodding and smiling. In one way, Medaptive Health enables the operator to do the angioplasty better. Everything Eric described is being done by the client on our tech. They put their content in they sent it to people. And so the uh, it's as good as the operator, but we gave them a much better scope. And so we gave them a scope. It's the it's the difference between if anybody knows the background of how um uh urological surgery went in the last twenty years or twenty years. My old job, sure. So urological surgery changed dramatically when we went from these um these scopes that people had always used and there are arthroscopic scopes. I mean, they use it for all kinds of different things. They went from scopes that that had like one or two things in them. And then were, you know, a certain level of accuracy to having an augmented reality Da Vinci device where the surgeon sits at a console and controls very precise robotic arms that can do manipulations that human hands are incapable of. Um, and, What we are trying to do for clinical trials is that we are bringing you the da Vinci. That is a great metaphor. And it allows people to do more with their knowledge and translate that into increasing cycles of support and engagement for participants. And it's taken from the basic understanding that experts wake up every morning and want to do right by their patients. I have a colleague who's a a deputy physician-in-chief at Sloan Kettering. His name's Larry Norton. Is one of the world's best breast cancer oncologists, brilliant guy, and he and I have talked about this many times. Where we don't want technologists replacing expertise, we want technologists amplifying expertise. It's not it's not artificial intelligence. It's what Fred Brooks in in computer science at UNC Chapel Hill said decades ago. It's intelligence amplification. How do we make them more efficient? How do we make their 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 intelligence translatable? And how do we make it so that it actually works? So we built the next generation machine to gobble up the clinical trial and turn it into something that where appropriate, because there's places it's not, you are making and amplifying the abilities of somebody who cares and wants to do it right.
0: So all right. Wait, hang on. So the follow up, the thing that you give participants after they after they participate in a trial. What does it look like exactly? And what is the experience like for the person compiling that content? How do you make that easy for them and how is it truly substantial and useful? So the
2: good thing is that oftentimes researchers have some insight into the populations that they work with. If you're a breast oncologist and you've been doing it for 20 years, you know, hey, I have patients who care about these things because I hear them tell me all the time. So hopefully you have some insight into it. If you're not listening to that, I mean, this is the whole reason we have PCORI, patient-centered outcome research. Like this stuff should exist. There should be more of an interplay. Um, The content experts know what things they want to send you, and they know what things they don't want you to see as well. They don't want Dr. Google inserted in the relationship between them and their patients. It's annoying. It, It sows distrust. It creates all kinds of problems, and then people end up doing things that are against their own interests that the clinician would not want them to do because the clinician has an idea about how to try to help them so they uh, from a from that standpoint on the content we are enabling a much easier way for the clinician to deliver what they think is useful and important information and but we don't decide what that information is in terms of how it looks i mean eric can tell you more about the experience um you know from looking at our uh, one of our clients apps mbc connect the metastatic breast cancer alliance Um, because they have very well and they have a lot of things on that app and the app is we provide them with that app to use but all of the content in it they put on it and that's that's a key differentiator it's self-trust well yeah but that but they should be the experts i'm not a medical oncologist and so why should i be developing and deploying content to metastatic breast cancer patients over my dead body. I shouldn't be
3: doing that. It's not my expertise. We provide the platform that enables these researchers to not only deploy the content that Jeremy's talking about, but also to segment to individual users. So if you are person A who is a female over 40 with this particular type of breast cancer, you may see something different in the personalized insights than someone who is male, who is 72, Who has this particular type of breast cancer? Oh, by the way, males do get breast cancer. And we've actually seen from the males that are participating in uh, the registry built on our platform that they're happy to see, not happy, but they feel better about seeing their other males because they don't meet or see very many other males because there's a bit of a stigma there. One key piece that I want to mention around metastatic breast cancer alliance uh, one of the problems that uh, we've seen in healthcare is that most organizations don't share data. They, they hoard their data and that has inhibited advances in medical research. One of the things I love about MBCA is that they've made all the data freely available in an open data registry on mbcconnect.org. So you can actually now go on and see reams and reams of de-identified data, right? We're putting the patient first, so you can't tell uh, who's who, but it has reams of data that we don't think has ever been uh, amassed before that hopefully researchers will be able to see and come up with some sort of solution or cure for metastatic breast cancer.
1: Yeah. And I, I, the metastatic conversation was always a, uh, let me start. The metastatic breast cancer aspects of advocacy has a whole different vibe and flavor and culture to it. And oftentimes they feel obviously mislabeled and ostracized and they don't consider themselves survivors and rightfully so and I remember there was a massive push to get one of the leading breast cancer organizations in the world to start talking about metastatic cancer and not just chronic breast cancer and the infighting between the stage one and the metastatic so the idea to give a community the opportunity to own their own identities together is very new. And digital health, social media, and advocate groups get full credit for recognizing how the river carves itself and where to meet those needs. I'll ask you one more question because this is clearly a 14-part series. <laughs> and this is a loaded question, but you can probably come up with a simple response, is is if you had to think of the one thing That really keeps you up at night about the barriers to progress. What would those, what would that be for each of you? Take all the time because we
3: can cut out the silence. (laughs) So we are mission driven and we are focused oftentimes on under-researched populations. Current research tends towards, frankly, older white males because that's who is often Funding the research. But there are women, kids, minorities in the middle, or also rural folks in the middle of the country or indigenous tribes that are often largely ignored. You actually hit upon it with metastatic breast cancer. Most research that's done is on primary. And so if we can help people who are under researched, who are underrepresented, that is one good reason to wake up in the morning. Now, what keeps me up at night is the fact that this is something Jeremy's pointed out a lot. Is that we're largely ignoring l- huge part of the market. So when companies do build technology, oftentimes they build it on iOS to start. That is kind of for rich white people. And it on, is a like coastal average. elite platform, it, it, isn't it? It is, and th- frankly, we want to be more inclusive. And so we've built our platform to where our apps work on iOS, Android, and the web. We also have a caregiver platform in case you're too old or too young, or for whatever reason, can't utilize an app. And so we would just want to make sure that as many people as possible are covered.
2: I have a 95 slide long talk that i give on this don that's an answer to the question that you just asked how long do we have how long do we have um (laughs) and i've been in the process of trying to turn it into a book because there's a lot wrong um the the entire system of interrelated i don't know cesspools i don't know what to call it Um, is is what keeps me up at night and we've picked a spot where we can try to tackle part of it um, and create a new machine that can hopefully empower the people who are really good who at this point are probably feeling pretty dejected or oppressed because the good people exist in this system they need far better tools and if we give them far better tools we will be able to tell the difference between the good and the bad. And then we can focus on getting rid of the bad. So there's, there's that piece of it. Um, there's a couple of things that uh, I felt like I was screaming at the community about for years. And nobody listened until it made it on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and I'm tired of seeing that. I'm tired of seeing the train wreck coming and nobody listening. And then afterwards, everybody going, oh, we couldn't have seen that coming. So, well, yeah, you could have because you were in the talk where I told you to watch for it and then you, you ignored it. So it, it, there's there's a lot of people not listening to the obvious problems. Um, I don't know how to solve that. You guys are much more capable of solving that problem. Well, you have
1: 95 pages to solve it.
2: At least. I mean, it, it, but, but if people are not listening to the kinds of things that are informed by reality... Um, we have an issue. I'll give you an example. Um, I call this the big data Henrietta Lacks moment. Henrietta Lacks' story is pretty, pretty well known in popular culture. This was a woman whose cancer cells and tumor were used without her consent to create products and then she and those, who, those like her who were poor and who were black did not receive the benefit of all the things that were created from her biology. And that is a terrible violation of autonomy and of respect Um, and it's a terrible injustice as well there is a big data version of this and I've been warning people about it for a long time health companies buy and sell protected health information private health information and I think that's wrong I think aggregating with either without consent or without saying what you're going to do and then buying and selling it without providing value back to the people whose data that is from is the same thing, except it's the big data version. And I told people to be wary of it. This is where privacy protections, data use, data sharing agreements really matter, where people need to be informed of it. We're doing it without their consent is illegal and should be considered illegal. That lawsuit is waiting to happen, and I don't know why it hasn't. And everybody ignored this, Um, in part because they didn't understand the technology and didn't understand data science, and in part because nobody wanted to fess up to the idea that this is actually wrong because some people were also trying to cash in on it. And we've had two examples of it. One was the acquisition of a health tech company who created electronic medical record systems for cancer patients. And that entire company was then bought by a pharmaceutical company, which means a pharmaceutical company in the process of buying a tech company basically bought the rights to do analytics on all of these cancer patients' medical records without their consent. That's big data Henrietta Lacks. Second one was at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And that was when the chairman of pathology, along with a few, this was very
1: public exposed. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
2: And, and, and I'm working with colleagues there and talking to them about it because Memorial to their special credit cares deeply about fixing this. Um, And their head of their ethics committee is a marvelous man who cares about solving the problem. They had an issue where Page.ai was the name of the company. It was in, there was investors on the board of governors of Sloan Kettering and uh, people involved with the pathology department on the company, and they sold the rights to decades' worth of pathology reports to this company. and Without uh, consent. Without consent of the patients and without consent of the physicians who worked for decades to create all those reports and to care for the patients. And so it, there was a complete disconnect there. These are the big data versions of Henrietta Lacks. How are you going to ensure that there's appropriate remuneration? How are you going to ensure that they focus on and do right by the people whose information and and samples they are taking?
1: And do they have the right to sell it? There are also people who didn't ask to be
2: in that market to have their stuff co-opted either. Right. They, They weren't being protected. You go there because it's the best cancer hospital on planet Earth and you are scared. And our job as research oversight people is to protect your rights and protect you when you can't protect your own interests. And if you're scared, you are open to coercion and manipulation. And my job is to make sure that people don't take advantage of you. And that's that tension. It's the tension between the patient advocate who wants it now because they're scared and they have every right to be scared. And our job is to say, you know what? You're scared. And I'm here to protect you. And I know you want to do this thing over here. And I know it looks seductive to do it, but there's things wrong with it. And you may say, yes, yeah, throw caution to the wind because I'm scared. But I don't want that to be happening. I don't want that coercion. I asked you guys what keeps you up at night, and now
1: I'm never sleeping again. <laughs> huh. But on that note, this is clearly a to-be-continued conversation. I feel this is a rabbit hole within a rabbit hole. But I want to thank you for coming on the show. We will definitely have you back. This is, an again, an endless stream of understanding an insanely complicated system but i just want to end by thanking you for keeping your advocacy hats at the top of your hats and that is what is helping to define how you are very genuine in trying to make a shitty problem a little less shitty
3: thanks for having us yeah thanks for having us
0: that's all for today folks If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.
2: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that.